Well, we're returning this week to our study through the pastoral letters. So today we are in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 10. Uh, just to remember what we're looking at here, uh, Paul is writing this letter to Timothy to give him guidance in pastoring the church in Ephesus. And chapter 3, verse 15, uh, Paul tells us what the purpose of his letter was. He says, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. So Paul is reinforcing to Timothy things Timothy already knew. He'd been with Paul for a long time, heard him preach in many churches. But reinforcing for Timothy the basics of what needs to be emphasized in a local church. He's spoken about things like teaching sound doctrine. He's talked about giving attention to prayer. He's talked about placing biblically qualified men in the roles of uh, elder and deacon. And then his descriptions of the church are just very helpful also because in that verse I just read, he talks about the church as being the household of God. So the church is God's special dwelling place. I mean, it's his sanctuary. And being God's household reminds us that we are actually his family. The church is also the church of the living God. We are the assembly that's been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. We belong to him. We don't serve the dead gods of false religions, the philosophies of man. Finally, the church is the pillar and support of the truth. So God has revealed his word, and as his church, we are called to believe it, to uphold it, and put into practice what it says. Each of these descriptions really are the backdrop behind everything Paul has to say about the church. One of the things he has emphasized is the need to address those who are teaching strange doctrines. I mean, since the church is the pillar and support of the truth, it's vital that things that are not consistent with biblical truth be identified and be rejected. So Paul's encouraging Timothy to do that in Ephesus, but of course that's an obligation we have really in every generation. When the first five verses of chapter 4, Paul gave a warning against what he called deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. He warned about how these false teachings are spread by people whose consciences have been hardened uh, because they have embraced strange doctrines. And the false teaching that he specifically spoke of in those first five verses is what we would call asceticism. Asceticism can be described as a severe self-discipline and avoidance of all forms of self-indulgence, typically done for religious reasons, religious purposes. But we'll see in the verses that we're considering today that there is an important place in the Christian life for self-discipline. But that is different from asceticism, which fools people into thinking that by giving up good things that God has created thinking that is what will make them more Christ-like, is what they give up. Instead, Paul says something pretty radical in verse 4. He says, everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with gratitude. A very amazing and refreshing kind of verse. When the verse we're talking about today, Paul talks about what true godliness is and how that relates to self-discipline. So, let's read 1 Timothy 4, 6 through 10. In pointing out these things to the brethren, 
you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. But have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself with the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life, also for the life to come. It's a trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance. For it is for this we labor and strive, because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. First thing I want you to take note of here is that we have another trustworthy statement in these verses. It shows up in verse 8. Uh, when you allow for Paul's own introduction into it, I think the actual trustworthy statement is this. Godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. I believe that's the trustworthy statement that he's referring to. So we'll begin this morning by considering what true godliness is and then talk about the need to give high priority to growing in godliness. So our first main point is this. It's a trustworthy statement for the church that godliness is profitable in every way. The trustworthy statement doesn't show up till midway through this particular paragraph, but, but I feel like it's central to what's said both before and after it. So that's why we're going to start with, this, with, this, with the trustworthy statement. This is the third one that we've seen in 1 Timothy. The title, trustworthy statement or trustworthy or faithful saying, depends on how your, your Bible translates it, I think is referring to a series of statements that the early church compiled as something of a confession of faith. They were statements that summed up important truths about the basic truths of what, of what Christians believed. And this was especially important because the early church did not have a complete New Testament. It was being written during their generation. So here, for example, you have the Spirit of God inspiring Paul to write this first letter to Timothy. It's obviously take, it obviously ends up then taking its place as part of the New Testament canon. But before Paul wrote Timothy, a listing of trustworthy statements had already been compiled. And the Spirit directs Paul to refer to several of them as he writes this letter. Just to remind you, the first trustworthy statement is it was in chapter 1, verse 15, which says this, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. I mean, that is a simple statement that communicates such important core truths about what the gospel is. The second one is in chapter 3, verse 1. It says, if any man aspires to the office of overseer, it's a fine work that he desires to do. Well, this speaks of the importance of having men who are biblically qualified to serve in the local church. And the fact that that, that statement is included in a list of trustworthy statements tells you how important the local church is to the Lord. The statement we're looking at today especially focuses on the doctrine of sanctification. It speaks of how believers grow in their faith. It speaks of the priority of godliness. So the first thing we need to do is define what is meant by the word godliness. That word godliness shows up 15 times in the New Testament. 13 of those are in the pastoral letters, and 9 of them are in 1 Timothy. So it's a major theme of this book. Here's how George Knight defines godliness. This quote is on your outline. 
Godliness speaks of the Christian religion. Its etymology is that of right reverence, worship, or fear. It is both the gift brought in Christ, and it is that work which one, which one follows after. It's the gift of Christ, and it's the work that follows after. So it speaks of religious piety, might be another way to say it. It's living in a true, worshipful fear of God. But it's important to see that it's rooted in the mystery of Christ. Just a few verses earlier, in verse 16 of 1 Timothy 3, Paul talked about how great was this mystery of godliness. And then he immediately begins to speak of Jesus Christ. So therefore, no one can be truly godly apart from Christ. Godliness is based, is, is, is based on and is the Christian faith. It's based on Christ. It's based on the fact that a person is saved by faith in Christ and not by works. It is not godly living that saves you. It is Christ that saves you. And as Knight says, godliness is both the gift of salvation that comes in Christ, and it's also the work that follows of living out that faith, and it's, both, and it's going to characterize every true Christian. The beginning of the faithful saying says this, Godliness is profitable for all things. So a person will never find themselves suffering setbacks in life because they are pursuing godliness too strongly. The word for profit literally means to proceed forward or to advance. It speaks of what will give benefit, what will give an advantage. So Paul says that godliness will benefit or give an advantage in all things. The saying, the, the, the saying in verse 8 then speaks of this prophet from two different angles. First one is this one. Christ-centered godliness promises great profit for the present life. Promises profit for the present life. So the scripture says it holds promise for the present life. Apart from Christ, the life that we live is in the context of sin and judgment. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 3 that we're all under sin. These are some quotes from the Old Testament. And here's what he says in, verse, in, chapter, in Romans 3, 10 to 18. He says, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become useless. There is none who does good. There's not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they haven't known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. I mean, it, that truly is just a horrible life. But apart from Christ, that's how mankind is described. This doesn't mean that non-Christians can never do things that are nice or things that are helpful. They can and often do. But it will never be considered good in God's eyes. Nothing we do can ever measure up to his perfectly holy standards. That's why to be a truly godly person, we have to have faith in Christ. It's because of Christ's sacrificial death, his bodily resurrection, then people, that people can be forgiven of sin. And as we said, that's the foundation of true godliness. And that's also the reason that godliness promises great profit 
for the present life. It means that a believer is enabled by God to have the fruit of the Spirit in their life. Fruit of the Spirit is described this way. It's love. It's joy. It's peace. It's patience. It's kindness. It's goodness. It's faithfulness. It's gentleness. It's self-control. I mean, that's the description of a godly life. And when that's what your life is like, then you are absolutely proceeding forward and advancing. It's giving profit to you. The second angle of profitableness is this. Christ-centered godliness promises great profit for all eternity. For all eternity. So first off, when we're in Christ, it is guaranteed that we will be with the Lord when we die in heaven. The Lord promises that he will conform all believers to the image of his Son. And at that point, the godly profit that we have obtained on earth will be infinitely multiplied. We will have a joy in the Lord that we can only have a taste of here on earth. Remember, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Eternity. So our joy in the Lord is going to be infinitely good because the triune God is infinitely good. Let me give you some descriptions that I borrowed from Thomas Watson about how good God is or describing his goodness. First, he says God is a universal good, which means he is good in every sense of the word. In every sense of the word, God is good. He is also an unmixed good. The good things that we have here are always mixed with things that limit their goodness. Sometimes even the, it, it can eat things that even dilute it in some way. But our God is perfectly good with no mixture of imperfection of any sort. Our God is a satisfying good. I'm going to read you now a couple of quotes from Thomas Watson on this. He says, though God be a good that satisfies, yet he does not surfite. The word surfite, I need to give you this definition and then read the rest of it. Surfite is the idea of disgust that's caused by excess. It's something that, you, something that you really like, that's really pleasant, but you've seen it so much. You've had it over and over and over and over again. You get to the place, I don't want it anymore. That's, that's what surfite is, if I'm saying that right. So let me read this again. Though God be a good that satisfies, yet he does not surfite. Fresh joys spring continually from his face. And he is as much to be desired after millions of years by glorified souls as at the very first moment. There is a fullness in God that satisfies and yet so much sweetness that the soul still desires more. Therefore, our God is a delicious good. The soul is ravished with pleasure in him. That is just a hint of the way that Christ-centered godliness promises great profit for eternity. Patrick, Patrick Fairburn sums up the profitableness of godliness in this way on your outline. 
interest in Christ goes first, and then likeness to Christ. And as this grows, their meekness also increases in an inheritance in his blessedness and glory. So it is a trustworthy statement, indeed, that godliness is profitable in every way. And I think we can see the rest of this paragraph makes application for us of the great benefit that there is in godliness. So let's look at our second main point. Because of the superior value of godliness, Christ's servants must give high priority to growing in godliness. As we noted earlier, verses 1 through 5, Paul was very clear in confronting people who believed and taught that you could use asceticism to grow in the Christian life. That false view of Christianity would be something that would sometimes raise its head in the days between Christ's first and second coming, which he describes as latter times. And he forcefully denied that you can obtain holiness by what you give up. Those things he actually describes as doctrines of demons. So now with this trustworthy saying at its core, Paul describes what it does mean to give high priority to growing in godliness. So in speaking to Timothy as a pastor, he says in verse 6, In pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. So from this verse, we see this next point. Dangers, dangers that would pull the church away from sound doctrine should be pointed out and rejected. So the elders, the pastors of the church need to be aware of dangerous teachings that can do great harm to the church. Asceticism in Paul's day was a, was a clear threat that he just could not overlook. It was causing problems, for sure, in the church at Ephesus. And it had the appearance of being spiritual. That's what made it so dangerous. It made it feel like you were spiritual when you did these things. He says, that's wrong. That's wrong. So Paul is saying dangerous teachings like this need to be talked about. There are sometimes those who feel like maybe a pastor shouldn't talk about things like that because it might be offensive to someone. And I have to weigh these kind of things myself and the elders themselves. When we would talk about some of these things, you have to weigh this kind of stuff. So, but there are issues that you sometimes feel like are so difficult, are so damaging that you just have to say something about it. You've got to address it. For example, if it's something that compromises the authority of Scripture, we need to talk about that. If it's something that actually changes or tries to change and distort the gospel message, then that needs to be talked about. If it's something that contradicts the basics of the Christian faith, then those kind of things need to be talked about. Now notice also down in verse 7, Paul brings up another category that would fit in dangerous things and he says that Christians should have nothing to do with this he says have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women now his description here is probably the same kind of thing that we say when we would describe something as an old wives tale it's the same idea it's a story or a saying that's often repeated but there really are many reasons to doubt whether it really is true and there's really any substance to it at all 
What Paul is probably referring to here is what he spoke of back in verse 3 and 4 of chapter 1. There he spoke of strange doctrines and described them as myths and endless genealogies. And he says all they do is just give rise to speculation. They really don't help expand or really profit the kingdom of God and really in any sense. They are a hindrance to the Christian life instead of a help. So personally, we need to consider, we just also always need to be asking ourselves these questions at times. Are there things in our life that take up such significant amount of time but add nothing of value to our walk with the Lord? They add nothing. We need to think about those things. I'm not going to make any suggestions. You got to, you know your own life and you know where you are and I know where I am. But there are times we have to have those kind of conversations with ourselves because Paul is telling them there are things that you have a tendency to be kind of enamored with and they are causing, giving you no help whatsoever. Get rid of that stuff. Don't do it in the same way you were doing it before. Now, Paul is calling Timothy a good servant of Christ Jesus. That's a description He's describing Timothy as a minister, but that really is a description really of all Christians. We're all to be good servants of Christ Jesus. We're all called to live our life as his servants as our, and with him as our Lord. Okay, so here's something else that we must do as his servants. Point B, Christ's servants must regularly nourish themselves, regularly nourish themselves on sound doctrine. Verse 6, again, says, I'm pointing out these things to the brethren. You will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished, on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. So yes, we have here that a good servant is cautious about things that are dangerous for Christians. But that's not all our primary attention is given to. We are aware of problems, but we give our regular attention to the words of the faith and to sound doctrine. This is one of the main reasons, one of the main things that Paul wrote this book, one of the main things he focuses on. And you know this, that the best way to become aware of counterfeits is to be an expert at what the real thing looks like. So we must be people who regularly read the scriptures. We need to give time to memorizing and pondering what the verses mean. We need to give time to understanding and reminding ourselves of basic doctrines of the faith. For example, Christmas is a good reminder to us of the importance of the incarnation of Christ. Easter, Resurrection Sunday, is a good reminder of the atoning death of Christ and the victorious resurrection from the dead. During the Christmas season, one thing that we do is uh, read through the Athanasian Creed together. That's a very helpful reminder of the importance of the Trinity. We regularly sing hymns that speak of the glories of the gospel. And when we read the scriptures, we hear it taught. We are regularly reminded of the fact that this is God's inspired and infallible word. So those are just some examples of words of the faith and doctrines and sound doctrine that Paul is talking about. But the word that kept sticking out to me this week as I would read through that verse is the word nourish. It means to support or maintain by feeding. We generally think of the word nourish in connection with the food that we eat. But when you think about this, you can be very aware, say, for example, of the, the different food groups that there are. You can have lots of good recipe books. 
You can have helpful things like refrigerators and ovens and microwaves and grills. You can produce delicious food. But if you don't eat that food, you're never nourished by it. In the same way, it's one thing to be very aware of the words of the faith and of sound doctrine, but we've got to take it to heart. We've got to consider ways to apply those truths to our life. I mean, we've got to, we've got to be able to incorporate the great doctrines of the faith, for example, into our prayers. One of the best ways to apply doctrine is pray about it. Bring it to the Lord. Let it guide you in how you pray and what you pray about. We need to use those scriptures to help us in temptation. We need to apply the word of God very intentionally when there's choices, decisions that we have to make. Because if we don't do those things and others, we're not going to be nourished on the sound doctrines. We'll just know them in our head, but won't get any real, a lot of real personal profit from it. But we want the profit. We want the nourishment. We need the nourishment. So if we're going to be godly people, then we need to be people who regularly nourish ourselves on the words of the faith and of sound doctrine. The next thing Paul says that is vital for God's servants to grow in godliness is this. Christ's servants are called to train themselves, train themselves for the purpose of growing in godliness. Look at verses 7 through 9. Have nothing to do with worldly fables, fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself with the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. It's a trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance. So all we've looked at so far are, are things that can help believers grow in godliness. Now Paul directly says believers must discipline themselves for the purpose of godliness. This is the kind of discipline that Christians are need to pursue in, in contrast to asceticism like he was talking about earlier. The word for discipline in verse 7 and 8 is a word that's usually connected with athletic exercises. So the idea is that the same kind of consistent and even strenuous exercise that's required of an athlete is what Christians need in godliness, to grow in godliness, in Christ-likeness. So we can learn from the things that athletes do to strengthen themselves, to improve their skills, but that's not the kind of discipline that Paul is focusing on here. He admits that there's profit. Uh, to regular exercise, so it's not a bad thing at all. But the profit that we might receive from physical exercise is, is, is insignificant compared to the profit that comes from the discipline for the purpose of godliness. So how do we do that? Well, the word discipline speaks of training. So we have to train ourselves with the help of the Holy Spirit to grow in godliness. And Paul encouraged us to use the training needed for bodily exercise as an example. So in the same way that we set aside regular time for exercise, we need to set aside regular time to read the scriptures, set aside time to pray. 
We need to organize our schedules in such a way that we can be regular in worship and our involvement with our church. We need to give time, set aside time to reading and studying books that can actually help us grow in our faith. These kind of things really are not optional. If you're a Christian, then your life has been changed by Christ. You're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. What a praise that is. And because we're born again, the Lord has given us a desire to know him, to grow in our faith. He's given us a desire to really to love other people, to have right relationships, to love, love our neighbor as ourselves. And we thank God for those desires, but we have to act on those desires. We have to discipline ourselves with the purpose of godliness. And again, as he said, this is all tied into this trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. Full acceptance. We're at the beginning of a new year, and uh, this is a time when people traditionally evaluate where we've been and what we want to pursue for the new year. A commitment to physical exercise is something that's always, I mean, it, almost every store you go into is going to try to sell you exercise equipment right now because they know that's what we're all thinking. That's what we all need. Um, and that's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. But a commitment to grow in godliness is a better thing. It is much more profitable to you. It'll be profitable in this life, and it'll be profitable all through eternity. Next, we see in these verses this, that Christ's servants labor and strive for true godliness regardless of the hardships they encounter, regardless of the hardships. It's interesting how Paul uses the words labor and strive to describe the Christian's pursuit of true godliness. The word labor speaks of being weary, tired, even exhausted. Strive is another athletic term. And it speaks of entering a contest and struggling against the opposition. So this assumes there's going to be struggle. There's going to be hardship involved. For an athlete, the point is not just to get in shape. And not just to get more skilled at what you do, it also includes competing against other people. Well, as Christians, we're not competing against each other as far as our faith is concerned. On the contrary, we're doing what we can to encourage each other in our faith. But this is a recognition that there are going to be significant challenges when we pursue Christ, when we pursue godliness. We're going to run into physical challenges, sickness disease, various uh, physical limitations, handicaps even. We are going to run into situations where we're not treated kindly. We are going to have people who despise us simply because we are Christians. We're going to be living in a world that does very little to encourage us in our faith. In fact, much of what the world does is trying to fight against our faith. So the Christian life is full of things that make us realize we're going to have to labor and strive if we're going to pursue the godliness that is truly profitable for us. So Paul's being very realistic about what the challenge is, but he doesn't just leave it with identifying the challenge. He ends the paragraph with these words in verse 10. For it is for, it is for this that we labor and strive because... 
We have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. So our last point is this. Christ's servants fix their hope on the one who is the very fountain of life, the Savior God. So our hope is that we'll be able to persevere as we train ourselves, as we labor and strive toward godliness. And the hope that we have is that we fix our hope ultimately on the living God. You remember the trustworthy statement from verse 8 spoke of promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So who better to give us the life that we need than the one who is himself life, the one who is the living God. God's people are not left to struggle on their own. He is personally and actively with us every step of the way. There is never a time, no matter what it feels like to you, there is never a time that your God is going to forsake you. That's not going to happen. And to make us see this more clearly, Paul speaks of the living God as also being the Savior God. He speaks of God as Savior in two different ways here. First, as the one, as he says, is the Savior of all men. First, we'll talk about what this doesn't mean. This clearly does not mean that all men are going to be eternally saved, regardless of whether they put their faith in Christ or not. I mean, the Bible is clear that that is not true. I mean, we could spend a lot of time talking about how the Bible does not say that. So when he speaks of God being the Savior of all men, he's speaking of God as being the deliverer or the preserver of life. He's speaking of, uh, that is part of what the word Savior means. So this is speaking of how God the Father governs with providential care. He provides breath. He provides sustenance. He provides life for men in general. They may use that breath. They may use that sustenance. They may use that life to curse his name and deny that he even exists. But God's providential care reaches to all men. But secondly, Paul makes it clear that that the Savior God does far more for those who are believers. He saves believers from their sin. He saves believers from judgment. He saves believers from being slaves of sin. He saves believers and enables them to be slaves of righteousness. He saves believers from falling into unbelief. He saves believers by causing us to be temples, sanctuaries of the Holy Spirit. He saves believers by listening to our prayers, by the, to the prayers and the, the prayers of, of his son as he intercedes for us day and night, constantly. He saves believers by causing everything that comes into our life to work for our good, to work to cause us to be more conformed to the image of his son. So, yes, we're supposed to beware of dangerous doctrines. Yes, we are to regularly nourish ourselves on sound doctrine. Yes, we are to discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. Yes, we must labor and strive for true godliness regardless of, how, of the hardships we face. But we do that because a living God is for us and not against us. Our Savior God has promised to see to it that we endure in our salvation to the end of our life and even into eternity. Lord, we thank you very much for your word.
we thank you for leading us to think about and, and apply once again the profitableness of being godly. I thank you for giving us a faith in Christ so that we actually are godly in the sense that we are your people, we are your children, we are Christ's followers, we are Christ's disciples. But Lord, we know that that involves godly living as well. So thank you for reminding us of that. Thank you for reminding us of the need to put aside things that are dangerous to our faith and to actually continue to persevere in godliness, to actually think of ways to train ourselves so that we can continue to grow in godliness and get even more and more profit in our life as we become more and more godly and honoring to you. Lord, I thank you for making these kind of promises to us and in giving us the help that we need to be able to, to do what you've called us to do here. If you're one who's never put your faith in Christ, then according to our definition of godliness, you're not godly because the only people who are godly are those who are in Christ those who have received Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. That's the starting point. So if you've never put your faith in Christ, I would encourage the prayer like this, I would encourage you to, to receive him. Lord, I realize that I'm not a believer, that I have sin in my life, and I want to receive Jesus Christ as my Savior. I want to receive him as my Lord. And I want to live, therefore, a life of godliness in Christ. If you want to talk in more detail about that commitment to Christ, you can make a note on your tear-off, or those who are watching online can reach out to us through the website. It is in the name of Christ that we pray.